Hi, everyone. It's autumn, the time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at even greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to your doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Whether it's your first time or your 170th time listening to us, I'm so grateful that you're here as we share Asian American stories from all over the country and all over the world uh, and, and to uh, highlight some of the wonderful things that our friends in the community are doing. Today, we are so excited to share the story of Hanako Pom Wakatsuki Chong, uh, who by day, or partially by day, is a director in the National Park Service and also is on the commission at the White House that is amplifying and elevating the voices of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community. My name is Jerry Wan, your host of the Asian Americans, and as always, I am joined by our producer and editor, Patrick Armstrong. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Jerry. What do you think of uh, Hanako's episode? I thought it was really incredible, to be honest. Uh, very insightful Y'all talked about a lot of things, and she shared a lot of things that I hadn't thought about uh, during my own journey through uh, Asian American identity, specifically navigating being both or being mixed race Japanese and Korean and figuring out how to not only identify as one or the other, but both and how that works in conjunction with not only working for like the Park Service, but also working as a policy advisor for the White House while being in Hawaii. And thinking about how all of that history and how all of those different things intersect and, and come together when it comes to that journey of identity. So that was something that really stuck out to me as someone who's on a similar journey of figuring out how do I navigate and exist as this version of Asian American. Yeah, I, I find her journey so fascinating. And to be frank, it was one of the most unique stories that I, I had the honor of telling. Um, and uh, quick correction, uh, her job title is superintendent. Uh, at the National Park, not not director. Um, currently, she's the superintendent of the Hono Uliuli National Historic Site on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. And uh, prior to that, she worked at the Minidoka National Historic Site in, in Idaho. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it also goes down this interesting path of dual identity, particularly in her case, Japanese and Korean. And for Japanese Korean friends or people who are familiar, that's a combination that's uh, a little bit challenging to talk about. Uh, given, you know, uh, I guess not recent, but a history of uh, Japan colonizing Korea, even as recent as our grandparents' generation. And and she was just very thoughtful in sharing the challenges of, of that dual identity and what that has meant for her and navigating what uh, her Asian identity has meant. And in particular for her father's side of, of Japanese background, just working in spaces and working physically in spaces and, and for an organization that uh, was a source of so much trauma, pain, and so much terrible things. And and for her to, uh, you know, take us through that journey was was so wonderful. Um, you know, a, a week after we recorded, uh, Patrick, uh, Hanako and I, we shared a meal in, in D.C. at my favorite restaurant in D.C., Anju. And uh, so we were able to sort of, you know, uh, reconnect and, you know, sort of reflect on the conversation. And she is just, as 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 she sounds on the episode, just as real as she can be in real life and just a thoughtful, kind, empathetic human being. And so uh, what a what a big honor for us to share this story 
big shout out to Justin Zhu at Standard Asian Americans for the introduction and for the entire commission, uh, the White House Initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders uh, for their collaboration in this podcast. And so you probably don't want to hear from us anymore. You want to hear my conversation with Hanako. And so let's roll to that. Here is Hanako, everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Uh, I am so, so, so excited for our guest today for a whole slew of reasons, but none other important the fact that somebody who looks like us and somebody who shares our history is right now uh, working at the highest levels of government in a role that is really almost in a perfect sense advocating for our community uh, with the insights and the experience and the perspectives that uh, only she might be able to have. And so today we're talking to Hanako Wakatsuki Chong. Uh, who is a Asian American and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander policy advisor with the White House under the what we're calling WIANPI, which is the White House Initiative of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, which is a long name, WIANPI for short. Uh, she's also the superintendent of the Hono Uli Uli National Historic Site on the island of Oahu, and that is under the National Park Service. And so, um, so excited to learn more about her, her story and, and how she believes uh, we should continue to advocate for ourselves in terms of sharing our history and just being a good Asian American person. So Hanako, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, this might be I, I, this might be the first time we are interviewing somebody who uh, is calling us or joining us from Hawaii. And I, I was chuckling as we were, uh, you know, logging on to the interview because government emails and access and Google Forms don't get along very well. And so we had a little bit of a, you know, a different way of getting here, but we're here. Uh, I am so excited to talk to you. And it just turns out we learned that we were in the same event at the same space at the White House back in May, being celebrated and also celebrating each other uh, for the AANHPI uh, Heritage Month celebration. And so first of all, congratulations to you of having this honor of being selected as a policy advisor and advocating for our community. Um, how did that come about and what does that mean for you? Yeah, um, so it came about because I, I've been working tangentially with Erica Moritsuku, who is deputy assistant to the president, and she's the senior liaison for the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islanders. So um, over the last year or so, we've been working on different projects, whether it's like trying to talk about um, Asian American discrimination and the anti-Asian hate kind of um, issues bubbling up to, you know, focusing on like the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor and um, the 80th anniversary of the Day of Remembrance, focusing on the executive order 9066 that led to the mass incarceration of Japanese during World War II, where we put together a three-day program that included like Crystal Ka'ai from the White House Initiative on AA and HPI, um, and also Erika Moritsugu. We got a letter from the president, and then we were um, blessed by the presence or a video from um, our vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, to participate in this. So we were able to stack that program with like very strong Asian American women to kind of show our force. And so through some of those programming, she was like, hey, you want to do a detail? And it worked out that um, I'm completing basically a six month detail and I'm about halfway through and it's been super incredible um, to be able to first, you know, be honored to be asked to do this. And second of all, actually being able to step foot in the White House and, you know, representing our communities, our various communities that we belong in. 
But also it's been personally really rewarding and fulfilling because I've been learning so much about myself in this process, especially being like working with predominantly Asian American, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, because I grew up in Boise, Idaho, uh, which is a white-topia to standards, you know, I think it's more than 80% white, Um, and trying to find my voice and who I am and feeling comfortable in my own skin, um, and just, I guess, being the more the most truest version of myself that's comfortable with being Asian American and specifically an Asian American woman in the federal government. Thank you for sharing that. And and I, I gotta say, I, I think it is um super cool. I don't know how else to say it. I, I think in a time where we feel so marginalized, so invisible at times, and then oftentimes helpless because we continue to see. Um, even though mainstream national media may have moved on, we still see the attacks in our community. We still talk about it. It is something that is still very real and um, present for us. And with all that being said, no government, no organization is perfect. But the fact that there is an investment being made into listening to the needs of our community and that there is you know, infrastructure created for voices to be heard and for um, action to be taken, I think... You know, it it gives us hope that the system at least is designed for us to be able to make this world a better place, I think. Um, you, you mentioned Boise, Idaho. How did your family end up there? Well, um, so my father, um, well, I, I was born and raised a little bit, I guess, early childhood in um, the Bay Area. Um, but my father worked for Hewlett Packard. And at the time, they're closing down his division in Sunnyville and relocating it. And um, it's actually kind of a funny story because I found out about, I want to say it's 15 years ago, that he had the choice of Portland, Boise, or someplace in France. And he chose Boise. Um, and I remember my sister and I, we were just like, what the heck, dad? Like, why Why did you choose Boise? Um, and my father grew up in Long Beach. And the only thing he said was, well, it reminded me of Long Beach. And me being a little brat, I was like, oh, dad, is it because uh, we're landlocked that reminded you of Long Beach? Or was it the racism that you missed? <laughs> growing up (laughs) and I just remember he just kind of rolled his eyes and was like I'm sorry you know but then you know I'm happy that he did choose that because I don't think I would be the person I am today Mm -hmm. if I wasn't challenged um growing up the way I did not that we have to always like live through adversity to to you know succeed but it did give me a very very different perspective because I didn't grow up in an Asian American community. I did not find that community until I was in college. Um, I've, you know, I'm half Korean, half Japanese. My dad is Japanese. My mom is Korean national and she immigrated and became a citizen. And so to me, culturally, I identify more Korean. Like when I'm sick, you know, I want Korean food, like or something like that. Um, When I think about home cooked meal or like, you know, the treats is like, oh yeah, I want tok or tokboki. I want, you know, whatever. I always think Korean food because that's what I grew up. My mom cooked Korean food. Um, but you know, I've only been um identifying as Japanese American recently and exploring that identity in the last 15 years or so. Um, but I know a lot of people when they'll look at my 
name face value, they see Hanako Akatsuki, and that's a very Japanese name. But I also have the middle name of Bom because I was born in the spring, and I have my mother's last name of Chong. And so, um, so yeah, so recently I've just only been comfortable actually using my full name, which is kind of interesting in of itself. But well, that's, that's and that's wonderful. literally the last three months. That is that is wonderful. Um I you know, when you when you mentioned about the city choices, it the word resilient, I think, is something that's been um, you know, spoken about or highly tied to characteristics of our community. Um, whether you're talking from a immigrant, refugee, adoptee background, you know, we're tough, right? Like we can get through things. And I, I wonder and I and I want to create a world where like we can be resilient, but what if we didn't have to be? You know, and, and how much more could we have achieved if we didn't have certain roadblocks, although we are where we are because of them. And, and I think, you know, in, in that sort of vein of, of, of challenges, tell us about how you said your mother was a Korean national agent. She moved here prior to meeting your father. Uh, tell us about the uh, father's side of your family and, and when they came to America and some things that impacted the way that you saw yourself in America when you were growing up. Yeah, so like. So my family on my father's side, um, you know, they immigrated to the United States in the late 1800s. So I'm actually um, fourth and fifth generation Japanese American on that side. So my great grandmother on my paternal maternal side was actually um, born in Honolulu. And most of our family have, um, you know, you know, they've gone to the continent and recently were just kind of um, boomeranging back, I guess, to uh, Hawaii. Um, but yeah, so they came in, you know, after essentially, you know, Japan getting forced open by Commodore Perry, um, you know, they're all trying to find economic opportunities, go into Japan to work in the fields, the sugar cane industry, and then eventually making their way to the continent to try to find other aspects, um, for economic security. Um, so I know my family went into farming for a while and then eventually before World War II was in the fishing industry. And so that's how they all got settled in. And then uh, World War II broke out. So my family was um, incarcerated first at um, Santa Anita um, racetracks um, as a temporary facility. And then eventually most of my family was incarcerated at Manzanar, uh, which was one of the 10 war relocation authority sites that incarcerated Japanese Americans during World War II. So. I'm sorry that your family had to go through that. I think it's um, that that part of history is especially under the context of some of the things that we've seen happen. It, it is so important to continue to talk about it, as painful as it may be, you know, and I, I think, you know, you mentioned that you predominantly identified with your uh, Korean heritage side, primarily growing up and, um, and and 15 years is a long time, but more later in life, balancing that with also the Japanese side. I think when we talk about the Asian American term and even adding additional territories whose experiences may not be so aligned, um, but the federal government wants to, you know, include, you know, regionally speaking, you know, for, for me, I got to say it was something that I really didn't internalize as something that could either happen to me or something that my community went through because up until the last few years, to be honest, I predominantly was a Korean American person. And 
living in our own smaller Asian American ethnic based ethnicity based communities, uh, even geographically speaking, I think coming to terms with a broader, more inclusive Asian American umbrella to talk about whether it is the, as you mentioned, the uh, incarceration camps, the railroad, the burnings of Chinatowns across the country, and and all these injustices that happen to us, I hope that we are the generation that says, let's stop infighting and let's talk about this as a we and an us. Because I think for many of our parents' generation too, they otherize themselves in these things. And, and I saw it particularly within the Korean American community, not until did Atlanta happen that many older Korean folks said, this hate crime stuff is our problem too, because it was happening to people, yes, Asian folks, but not us. And, and so it's been a journey for me. And I know it's been a journey for so many of my friends and other folks as well. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on just sort of balancing those two identities, um, knowing where, you know, what the source of pain was for your family. And and again, this isn't this wasn't that long ago. And these are places that we still either drive by or, you know, talk about or think about. And yet we not every person knows about it. Um, and it is something that I think America as as a unit and as its people it's okay to talk about the past as long as we promise to learn from it and not to do it again because it was so bad. Not talking about it isn't going to make anything better. So first, I want to say, you know, thank you for sharing that story. And and so I'm curious to learn sort of the identity growing up outside of, or I guess previously to, and, and outside of your role with the White House, you are uh, a superintendent in the National Park Service. That's not a career path that most Japanese or Korean families easily think about when they want their kid to go do something. And when we think about, and, and this is also conditioning that I think we need to be more mindful of, when we think of park ranger, we don't envision you, nor do we envision me. It, it's not a role and it is not a part of uh, even the government ecosystem that many either find themselves in or see ourselves in. Where was the spark and the interest to pursue, which in your case was first history, then museum studies, and then eventually landing yourself, you know, at this really cool job, taking care of a national park. Tell us a little bit of that professional journey of how you found your passion for that. Yeah, um, it's kind of a little bit of a story because originally I thought I wanted to be a high school history teacher because I come from a long line of teachers and that just seemed like it would be appropriate. And I love history and I had amazing history teachers like my seventh grade history teacher, Mr. Lukey, then my ninth grade teacher, Mr. McCready, and my uh, 11th grade teacher, Mr. Cypher. And they, you know, were telling us like, oh, you need to tell the history from the bottom up. Like, you know, yes, there's this top down mentality. But the thing is, to get a true story, you have to understand what the people really experienced. And I remember that that just totally blew my mind because I was like, wait, it's not all in that book. Like the history books is supposed to have it all. Right. And then I realized, oh, OK, yeah, um, you know, people have bias when they're telling these stories. And how do you eliminate the bias? How do you get people's uh, words out? when um, they may not want to share, you know, especially dealing with sensitive history like the Japanese American incarceration. So over time when I was in college, like, you know, 
I was still set that I was going to be a history major. I also did political science because I was like, oh, maybe I'll go into politics. But, <laughs> um, you know, there was some racism, you know, within Idaho um, where it was kind of like a little bit difficult to, you know, get that internship in the state legislature because I don't necessarily look like the people who's normally there. Um, and those, you know, other issues too, um, you know, some of it was like safety as well because it's like, you know, growing up in Idaho, my mom had a business. We were harassed by the neo-Nazis and skinheads. We were robbed by them. Like I went on an archaeological dig up in northern Idaho and my dad and I had a candid conversation that I would call him every hour to let him know what milepost I was at just in case I disappeared. Um, and it didn't really freak me out because it was just, you know, that's what we need to do. Right. And so, you know, going through that and just learning about the history and finding out that Idaho had a Japanese American incarceration site that was not reflected in my mm. education. Like in fourth grade, we didn't talk about it. And my uh, great aunt actually wrote a book um, on the Japanese American incarceration that a lot of people is. Um, it's their first entry point into learning about it. It's called Farewell to Manzanar. And I just remembered my family, like my dad was like, oh yeah, you're you're in third, fourth grade here, read this book. This is our family history. And then that was it. Like there was like no book discussion. It was just like, okay, I read this out of context. It seems like it's important, but it's not reflected in my schoolwork. So it must not be important, right? And so, you know, when I got into college, then there was an individual, uh, he was the former dean of my college. He um, actually reached out to me because somehow he recognized my last name and he's he assumed that was just visiting. I was like, no, I go to Boise State University. He's like, oh my gosh, I want to work with you. Let's get your great aunt out. And so he got me involved with Minidoka National Historic Site and the preservation of that site. And so I ended up being on the board. But the the sad part was when he first reached out to me, like I had like a 30 minute conversation with him. He was talking about Minidoka and then he he stopped and he's like, do, do you know what Minidoka is? And since he was the former dean of my college, I just lied and said yes, because I didn't want to sound stupid. <laughs> and then I Googled it and I was all like, oh, my gosh there was a site here. And so that's how I got really involved. And um, one of my colleagues, um, she's the one that actually encouraged me to apply for a job because she's like, you know, I, I was working really closely with the site and there was a chief of interp there that we worked closely with and the superintendent that my friend Anna, she worked in the regional office in Seattle was like, hey, do you, do you think you want to be like Carol? You know, because she was a chief of interp. And I was like, no. <laughs> and she's like, what? why not? I was like, Oh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I belong. And she's like, well, what, why do you say that? And I'm like, cause when I looked at the park, there are mostly white folks. And she was like, you know, I'm Japanese American and I'm in the park service. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess so. But you're also in Seattle, you know? And to me, I made the separation that Seattle is more diverse. Idaho is not. And so I don't fit. And so she encouraged me to apply for my first park service job that was actually at Tule Lake National Monument, which was another Japanese American confinement site out in Northern California. So that's how I kind of got involved in, in it. And then after getting into the park service, recognizing, wow, like I could actually take this public history um, approach for preservation. Wow. I, you know, I think one of the things that our parents, um, and I'll generalize here, and I know it's not the case in every family, I, I think there's this tendency to want to protect us. And, and they have decided whether it is whatever they experienced uh, for refugee folks, it's coming over here in the process that they, what they saw and what they endured 
you know, regardless of background, our grandparents endured so much trauma and our parents received that because that's who they were raised by. And and so when, when we come to America or other places where there seems to be opportunity, academic, professional, financial opportunity for us to do something different, I think sometimes out of care um, and with the best of intentions, many of our parents don't go deeply into why would I want to burden you with this? You have so much ahead of you. But when you found out, you decided to make it your own and to do your part in making sure that not only was American history preserved and taught, but a part of your own family history. Part of your own family history that I think is, again, like you said, is still not in curricula across the country. We have to pass legislation in certain states to mandate it because it's exhausting, but we have to convince people that our history is American history and that, you know, it people should know about it and it is not some sort of agenda to make white kids feel bad. It's actually what happened. And, you know, for 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 me when I hear your story, I think it is so powerful. And the fact that you have done it from a place in the organization where it is just so fascinating from you work for the organization that brought so much pain and still does to countless hundreds of thousands of uh, Americans of Japanese descent, including your own family, which, you know, you mentioned earlier, EO 9066. And, and a part of that was while people of Japanese descent were incarcerated, Japanese men still signed up to fight for the country that was keeping their families in these camps. Um, I don't know if I would be able to do that. I don't know if many people would do that today because we are continuing to see how unfair and, and even rigged some of the policies and some of the things are. How has that kept you going to continue to do the work that you do as your ability to even have greater impact through your day job and you know with the work through the White House has given you a bigger platform to share some of these stories? Yeah, I guess first kind of touching on like those what if scenarios, right? It's like those things are really powerful to kind of be in that space just to think because you would really never know unless it truly happened to you, right? And it's really interesting when you think about how these policies impacts people and how does it impact people? Because with this history, you know, I've been studying it for, you know, now almost 20 years and I'm always like learning more about it, why people made the decisions that they made and what were the reasons. And there's no like one clear answer. It wasn't all for patriotism or not. Like there was a whole variety of reasons why people decide to prove their loyalty in one way or another or decided to, you know, do something else. And so like my family, like my my grandfather, he wanted to enlist to prove loyalty. Um, but my great-grandfather, he was actually immediately after attack on Pearl Harbor, he was taken away by the FBI because we were a fishing family. So they had two boats. They possess, you know, uh, possessed those boats. He was taken away. Our family didn't even know where he went for a while. And so when he was reunited with our family, like, my grandfather's like, I'm, I'm going to prove loyalty. But my great-grandfather's like, why do you want to, like, die for your country that did this to me because they kind of broke down his spirit right and um and so they came to an agreement that they would just wait till my grandfather was drafted 
And then, um, and that was the the middle ground that he wasn't going to offer himself up prematurely, but they would wait for the draft to take him. Um, but then it impacted so many other aspects of my family. Like my grandmother was essentially, um, you know, age of 26 or so. Um, and when my grandfather was drafted, she ended up you know, becoming a single mother, about four kids. She ended up having uh, three children in camp. And my father was the first one born free after camp. Mm. But she was also like kind of a surrogate mother to her younger in-laws who are under the age of 18. And so it was a really like difficult time. And that's why like I spent a lot of my energy and time to honor these stories, you know, because yes, my grandmother was highly affected by it. And I recall like when I was 16 years old, I was trying to do an oral history with her, you know, not completely understanding what occurred. You know, it's just like this little 16 year old is like, grandma, tell me about this worst time of your life, you know, and she just completely didn't even answer my questions. She would be like, oh, when I was a kid, I used to play tennis in the street. And at first I thought that she was like, oh, maybe just getting a little senile. Cause I was like, oh, she was a young adult, but okay. You know? And after a while she finally just said like, cause she was very, very religious and that helped her get through uh, these hard times. And she said, you know, God wouldn't give me a task I couldn't um, overcome. So you know, that stayed with me because as I grew into these positions and learned more about the incarceration, I realized how um, challenging it was for people to live in it. Um, you know, it challenged them emotionally. Um, and it was really hard for folks to, you know, try to find like the joys in life when, you know, everything was taken away from you. And, you know, then a family was drafted out or whatever, then you're also losing your family members. And some people never came back, you know? And so I now realize where it's like, we need to preserve these stories because some people did stuff because of loyalty. Some people did it because of just duty. Some people chose to stay with their family because they want to keep their family together, whether that's renouncing uh, renouncing their citizenship or, um, you know, being a no-no or one of those um, various other, you know, paths that people took because um, there was this whole loyalty questionnaire that divided the community. But um, I think that, you know, that's why I spend a lot of time to just basically honor these stories because, you know, it could happen again. It has happened again to different communities, you know, and as a historian, you see these trends that they kind of go in circles over and over again. Um, there's just a different community that's being you know, targeted, but um, but they're very similar um, in the story. And until we as Americans recognize that this is not only a Japanese American story, it's not only an Asian American story, this is an American story that we need to understand. And one of my mentors, he actually, it was a beautiful quote that he has. He's like, you know, this is not only a Japanese American story, but American story with um, implications for the world, um, which is so true because we need to understand like our past so we could understand our present because if we don't understand our past and present we cannot create that better future for ourselves and our children you know and so history is very important and i know i'm being biased because i'm a public historian but we need to understand these things so so we can you know move on Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I think I, I just learned so much about the intricacies and the and the subtle nuances of of the 
the vast diversity of experiences, even within the Japanese American population. You know, I think, you know, we, we helped as, as a podcast, get the word out about the stamps that came out uh, mm -hmm. recently uh, from the post office, honoring the men of the, the regiment. Um, yeah. And I think even just thinking about it now, like how much of those challenging conversations and different narratives are now also going to not get silenced, but uh, not told as much because now the the narrative is, wow, look at these. And just even the way that I framed the question to you, I feel a little bit ignorant in asking that now because it's coming up with the most positive patriotic version of the story without being mindful of how challenging it was for everybody else going through that, that maybe not everybody wanted to do it, right? That people felt compelled to, or maybe survival instincts kicked in, right? Like maybe if I go and prove myself, like the outcome might be better. And and yet mm -hmm. when we get to the point and kudos to the entire team for, for making that happen, but it's, it's so complicated. And I think that's something that we don't talk about often. Um, yeah. And, and can I actually, yeah. oh, sorry, Please, can no, I just circle back a, yeah. around? Because I, I forgot to mention this, but, you know, at the beginning, you're talking about like the the communities that we need to understand us as an us versus a, or a we versus the us versus them kind of thing. Where it's like, you know, historically, when you look at the Japanese American incarceration, there was this loyalty questionnaire to basically Oh, well, I shouldn't say basically, the outcome ended up dividing and conquering the community. So when you have infighting within community, you don't have the power to push up and push the issues, right? And so when you kind of talk about that, you could see that this is almost a microcosm that it's like, this is why we need to kind of unite because if we, you know, what would have happened, um, and it's probably not best to do what if situations, but if there wasn't as much infighting within the community, because even to this day, there's communities like families who've never talked to each other since because of how they answer this loyalty questionnaire wow. or that their their family decided to renounce their citizenship, whether it was just to keep the family together or because they were making a statement that we have families today that do not talk to each other. And if we were able to kind of mend those things, how much stronger could our community be? Right. Um, we shouldn't have those infightings. We need to, you know, think about the collective community because as we start fracturing ourselves into different subgroups and finding within, then we will never get the capacity to come together and do the community building that's needed to amplify our stories to help make the change. Thanks for that clarification. And I mean, that leads me to the next topic I wanted to ask you about. It's complex enough for the expectation, whether it is out of survival or for um, collectivism, for three plus dozen countries or people from three plus dozen countries to come together under this Asian American banner to say, this is our voice, right? And um, the population statistics are that six ethnicities, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Indian, Filipino, Vietnamese, uh, make up 85% of our community. And so in that last 15%, is the real diversity of 25 plus countries. And, you know, how do you make sure that we, when we say Asian American, that everybody feels like they're being represented? While we know that exhaustive representation is such a huge challenge. But when we come to either celebrating May or talking about us for good and bad, for what it's worth, we talk about it in the same breath as Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Um, 
you're of Asian descent. Your current station is on the island of Oahu. When I speak to uh, audiences, whether they be companies or schools, I'm constantly mindful of the fact that that Pacific Islander experience is not mine, that their introduction to America or the way that America introduced themselves to their land was very different than your family and my family in which we chose to come here. How do we mindfully navigate the differences at the beginning of most of the territories in the Pacific that are U.S. controlled right now? They didn't really have a choice of becoming a part of the American conversation or half representation in some you know odd sense. I, I find it extremely challenging to navigate that conversation. Overall, I think when you have dominant narratives versus smaller groups of people, I don't think we do as a community justice to our Pacific Islander friends in amplifying and elevating their voices as we do ours. But until you know folks decide otherwise, we are going to be spoken together or spoken in the same conversation as even the initiative of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders is one unit. But it's it's so complex. And and I'd love to get your you know thoughts on sort of how we can um yes, we know it's challenging, but how do we make sure that we can be more inclusive in the way that we talk about everybody and that people don't feel, uh, as you mentioned, the strife that can happen intra-community, which then makes it really, really hard for us to be unified to fight for things for all of us. Tell us about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say it always comes down to like education and understanding, right? Like we shouldn't feel that we could ever become a proxy for a community that we're not a part of, right? But we could always create space to make sure that their voices are heard and that we include people at the table, but also not just having people at the table for conversations, but creating the space that they have a place to speak and an environment that people will listen. Because, you know, sometimes you get the checking the box, oh, we're missing this ethnicity or that ethnicity, they could be in the room. But to fully be able to create space where people are going to be listened to and heard. One of the things that um, I kind of struggled with when I first got this position um, as superintendent of Honolulu Uli National Historic Site was, was there anyone on the island that could have had this job? And the answer is probably, yeah, there could have been a lot of people. But the way that the announcement was put out was only for a merit promotion within um, the National Park Service or Department of Interior or the Federal Service. And so it sometimes the hiring practices kind of challenges things. And that's why I... You know, I'm trying to find ways to combat that, you know, by doing like USA jobs training and trying to get people like to actually do true recruitment and retention opportunities. But when I actually, you know, stepped into the role and actually moved out here, I recognize where it's all like I come from a place of privilege. I'm coming from the continent, you know, being a transplant over here. I got moved. I'm contributing to the job crisis. I'm contributing to the housing crisis because I bought a place, um, you know, and I am essentially a byproduct of the military industrial complex, you know, with Honolulu being a Japanese American incarceration site in Hawaii during World War II. And, um, you know, there's so many layers here that I at least know that in one aspect, my existence here is kind of not natural, but I'm also honored that I'm able to do this. 
And so what can I do? Right? What can I do in my position is that I could try to find these spaces to have these conversations and these dialogues to create education opportunities to work with the local community, but then also my role within the White House Initiative on Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. I'm the region nine lead for Hawaii in the Pacific. And it's through that arm and mechanism, we could do a lot more outreach to the Pacific Islander community and to the Native Hawaiians as well to um, kind of bridge the gap between um, the community and the federal government where we have these programs and sometimes we're not really good at um, getting people to know about these programs that they have access to. So, you know, making that effort to reach out and do these things and trying to find ways how we could combat, um, you know, our colonization of of this island, which, you know, is still essentially is continuing to happen. And I at least know my place that I am a colonizer, but I'm trying to do like, I'm I'm not trying to contribute kind of like what you've been saying. It's like, you don't want to contribute into the negativity, but how could we then, you know, create what it is, you know, cause I am in this situation, but how can I make it better for others and trying to find those spaces that we could either, you know, open up, or we just create a new like lane or a room for people to exist, right? Um, and I think that that is all of our duties um, as part of, you know, this family of the larger AA and HPI diaspora that it's like, you know, sometimes when your little cousin, you know, isn't getting food, you know, at a picnic, you go help them. It's like, you don't just say, good luck. I hope you get to eat something. It's like, no, it's like, we need to help each other out because that's what families do. And I think, you know, um, in, in the in the spectrum of privilege, those of us who have more privilege, it's on us to be louder, right? Because <laughs> we get to have access. I mean, you get to go to the White House for work and you have the ear of Erica and other people who can actually make things happen in this country then. Obviously, that impacts the rest of the world and just knowing your family history and in one and a half generations for you to have that space. Um, I, How do we not remain hopeful that we can you know, do some good uh, while we can? How has your family reacted or responded, at least to the White House piece? Because I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, I've shared this story on the show many times, but, you know, getting the invite to attend the uh, reception in May was was really life-changing because I think it was more than anything just validating to me that the work I had chosen to do and amplifying our stories was meaningful enough and important enough that it caught the attention of at least some folks who work at the White House and, and sent me the invite and validating to my social circle in that, you know, hey, wow, that's, he actually made something of that, you know, little idea that he had. And, and, and most importantly, um, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell a, a generalized stereotype joke, but, you know, my dad said, I am proud of you. And, you know, raise your hand if your Korean dad said those words to you or any Asian dad. And, you know, again, I, I say that with full recognition that the world that they grew up in was so different and that we have to have kindness and understanding of the world that they grew up in, which to them, it is so foreign. And and he said, I am, he said, I am proud of you. And I am so happy that you found something that you love doing. And it seems like you have found something that you love doing. How has your family reacted to this 
odd continual full circle moments in your life, um, knowing what your family has gone through. And, and now that you, um, is it surreal? Is it, you know, do you pinch yourself every time you go? How, how do you know? All of the above. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's all of the above because, you know, like you, it's a validation, right? Like, wow, I I get to go to the White House. I can't believe that this is real. Like, did I steal someone's life? Why am I here? What's going on? Like, you know, those insecurities, but also um, the pride of being like, wow, this is, this is my office space. Um, It's been interesting, you know, with my family, because my family is like super, you know, they're excited about it. Um, my mom, you know, being a Korean American mom was, you know, she would just say, uh, be humble. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I, you know, that's cool. And I think that that's her way of saying, like, I'm proud of you. Um, because, you know, I didn't really talk too much about, you know, the opportunity of getting this until I got it. Cause I didn't want to like, you know, get people's hopes up or even my hopes up on it. Um, but it was definitely validating um, in a different aspect because, um, you know, I've, I've been in the park service for a while. This is going to be, I think, my seventh year. Um, and as I was moving up the ranks, like even one of my cousins, he I thought, you know, at first I thought he was joking, but I think he was really serious that he was like, when are you going to get a real job? Because I guess he just thought I was a perpetual intern. And so now <laughs> being in this position is like, oh, you have a legitimate job. And now you're over at the White House. So now I could finally be like, because I'm I'm the second youngest of the cousins. So my older cousins are in their 60s. And so now it's like, and their kids are actually older than me. So it's it's really interesting where it's all like, oh, okay, I finally um, feel like my family at least now understands what I kind of do because they're like, oh, it's the White House and whatnot, um, which is really great. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting, you know, the whole, you know, my father passed away um, back in 2017. So I haven't been, you know, able to, you know, see what he, he would think. But there's been moments like even last year for December 7th, it was the 80th anniversary. I was talking to my supervisor um, and I was like, I really wish my dad was here to see what I was doing because we are like honoring, you know, these vets. And um, we got a presidential message that Erica helped me, you know, acquire. And I'm just like, God, it'll be so great. But, you know, and I talked to my mom and she's just always quiet, like, okay, I know you do good, you know. Um, and yeah, so it's just like, I, I hope like, you know, we always want our parents to be proud of us. And I do think, I think that she gets it, but, um, actually last year I was, um, it was kind of a weird award that I got. I got this uh, lifetime achievement award, um, from the Idaho state historical society, which I'm like, Oh, I guess like the next step is retirement. Um, because, but it was funny because I was the youngest person being honored. And I remember when I was in college, um, you know, my dad was always supportive that I want to be a history major. And my mom's like, Oh, I misheard you. You want to do like pre-med? Oh, you want to be an attorney? Oh, okay. An engineer. I got it. And I'm like, no, I, I want to be a historian. And she's just like, whatever, you know? And so I was at least able to kind of rib her where I'm like, mom, this is what a history degree gets you. And then she's like, yeah, I'm proud. And she finally said that. So I was like, oh, you know, um, my Korean mom, 
finally said that, you know, nowadays she gives me a half hug. We don't do like full <laughs> frontal hugs, but you know, that's the most, you know, I'm going to get from my mom, but I know that that's her way of showing love. And when I go home, I get the dokoki and brugoki and my mom will freeze it. So I could take it back to Hawaii <laughs> so I could cook, but, um, you know, which is great, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's been good. It's been, um, you know, good for the validation also for work because I also, you know, I struggle being in, you know, like what you said, I work for the federal agency that, um, incarcerated my family. And, um, you think about the origins of this bureau, um, you know, it isn't the most happy go lucky story because it's about land management and whose land are we managing you know and all those things and um and what that comes you know just understanding like the systemic racism that exists um and so it's been a struggle for me you know um for a lot of my existence within the federal service uh, whether it's you know sexism or racism issues but you know being able to have this extraordinary opportunity kind of you know, makes it a lot better, but it's giving me a lot more tools to go back to try to hopefully affect change for others. You know, the term that we maybe have overplayed over the last how many ever years is representation matters, right? When, mm-hmm. we, when we see somebody in a position of influence or even just, you know, superficial vanity, like in media or, you know, in other places like, wow. And, and we've sort of accepted this, like, if you can see it, you can believe it. But I think we need to go a little bit further than that. And it's like the proper representation matters that the person with the visibility has to have the right mindset and the right perspective to be able to use their position and their responsibility with care and with uh, empathy so that we can uh, make it easier for the next person. And and Hanako, I, I think you embody that spirit so much, just the way that you talk about even your own presence on the island and, and your role and understanding how difficult that conversation is when people meet you perhaps. And, um, and, and so I, I want to say thank you for what you do. Um, it is so damn cool. Uh, really just genuinely so damn cool to have a Korean sister doing what you do to, uh, to have a white house email address. That's cool. Um, but ultimately, you know, being in the right place at the right time, working with the right people, most of it behind the scenes when people don't really realize the things that need to happen. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, leave us with your final words of hope, inspiration, or even just, um, you know, reflection as as we think about coming upon the midpoint of your service with the White House and the midterm elections are, are on all people's minds and sort of where we go from here um, as a community while things are continuing to be challenging uh, for many. Um, and so help us finish out the show by completing the letter the Eurasian Americans. Yeah, well, I guess there's two things. So, dear Asian Americans, you know, it's like we need to always prepare ourselves for these opportunities. Like, I think I've been lucky in life, but the luck um, was always preparedness because that's what my mom always told us. She always said, you need to be pre- be prepared for all opportunities. So, you know, you need to educate, put yourself in all these different situations and get the tool sets that you need. So as these opportunity comes and you're prepared, you'll hit with all this luck, right? It seems lucky because you happen to be prepared for those opportunities, even though some of those opportunities may not come. You know, you don't have the skill set. So that opportunity just flies by or, you know, something else happens. 
So um, that's one thing that's just like, I guess more of a mantra of how I've been kind of existing in my life as I've been, you know, moving through my career. I guess the last thing will be more of the mushy sentimental aspects where, you know, we need to just exist in the place of love. Because it's like, if you put out anger and hate, you kind of manifest that around you. But we need to have that true love for each other to have these honest and sometimes difficult conversations to call each other in, not necessarily calling each other out, but then also have the mindset of that growth mindset that like, you know, just try to be a better person tomorrow than you were today. Sometimes you're going to take a few steps back and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you come at things with love and, you know, you truly care about your neighbors, your cousins, your friends, you know, aunties and uncles in the community, you know, that's, that's what we get to take away with us is the love that we get back from people as well. Right. So just spread the love and, you know, embrace like, cause I, I totally embrace like the Aloha spirit where it's like, I've been so welcomed in this place in Hawaii, where this is the first time I've lived in a predominantly Asian American, Native Hawaiian Pacific American uh, Islander community. I didn't realize how much of a burden it has been living in a community that does not represent me, that I always had to code switch. I have so much more mental space to just exist as me. And it's something that I know is a complete privilege. And I hope other people can get to that place. And I just hope that, you know, you could just share the love with others who may not have that, but they need that just to exist for another day or two. So share the love. Well, thank you again so much for sharing your story. Big shout out to uh, Erica in her office and to our friends, Justin, and everybody else at Stand With Asian Americans for making this interview possible. I am most excited because we're going to overlap being in D.C. together in a couple of weeks, and we'll figure out a way to hang out and to uh, say hello in person. And um, really, congratulations. I personally am, am so proud of what you've done, and I know that so many listening uh, agree to have not just visual representation, but proper representation. and. I cannot wait uh, to hear more about the work that you do uh, and how you continue to positively impact our community. So thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you. Huge shout out to Hanako. Thank you so much for allowing us to share your story and wishing you all continued success, happiness, and health as you navigate your career and in doing really, really great work in amplifying our community. And, And what's such a... What an honor uh, to be able to do that at, at the highest level with the federal government within the White House. And so, so proud of her and so excited for what's to come. If you want to learn more about her work, uh, we will put the links to where you can find her bio and, and ways to connect. And if you are visiting Hawaii, to go visit the Honolulu Uli National Historic Site and uh, say hello. I'm sure she'd love to meet all of you. You can learn more about the show at theyearsandamericans.com. You can email the show or me at jerry at justlikemedia.com or jerry at jerrywan.com. On the Instagram, we are at the Asian Americans on the show, and we are at Jerry J. Wan for me personally. And Patrick, where can people find you? They can find me on the Instagram at Patrick in the World, also on LinkedIn at Patrick in the World as well. And of course, my website is patrickintheworld.me. Had a great, fun week uh, today. Just came back from the Asian American Foundation Summit. Super excited. If you are making plans to uh, add stuff to your watch list, 
Make sure that you're adding 38 at the Garden. We're looking forward to speaking to director Frank Chi about this wonderful movie, not just about basketball, but about Asian American identity. You're off to Korea in a couple of weeks, uh, so I'm sure you're excited for that. And as we enter the fourth quarter of 2022, um, hope you are spending time to reflect on what the last couple of years has meant and uh, looking forward to finishing the year strong. I am your host, Jerry Wan, here with our producer, Patrick Armstrong, and we wish you health, happiness, and safety. And we will see you next time here on Dear Asian Americans.